message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Seats. Well, good morning. And welcome to summer. <laughs> and happy Father's Day to all of you. And I do want to... Um, Say congratulations and happy Father's Day to the newest father in our family. Zach completed the adoption of Sydney this week. We got to witness the signing of the papers and all. And Proud of that, man. Proud of it. Now, when we talk about Father's Day, and I know there are always mixed emotions, I'm, I'm not good with holidays like this because, you know, you need to keep your focus on the main thing, and a lot of times fathers, mothers, emotional distractions for what we need to know from the Lord, but I think it's a good time to challenge people, right, as well, and so I want us to look at the idea of Father's Day, and I acknowledge that it can be a painful day for a lot of people, whether it's Father's or Mother's Day or whatever like that, for for many different reasons, and people like to avoid pain, especially in church. You don't come to church to, to hurt, right? That's not the point. However, this message is not designed to cause pain, but it's designed to be a revelation and an encouragement to us to focus on really the simplicity of manhood, the simplicity of us as men becoming the man of God that he desires us to be and to be used in his kingdom work here on earth to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's the intent. Now, that's not a military kingdom. It's a different concept because the kingdom of earth begins in us. It begins in us and it spreads to those of our household that God has put in our charge as men. And as the unpopular saying would be, the head of the household as men, right? In this day and time, there's a challenge to that, but God puts us in that. Now, even as men, you may say, well, I'm not fighting it. My wife wants to be head of the household. It's hers. Fine. Too bad. God put you in charge, and he's going to hold you responsible. Just the same when the time comes. But the kingdom begins in you and into the relationships of those within your household. Just recently, Chris, my wife and I, had a conversation with a young man who was asking the question, how do I fulfill my purpose, my role that God has for me, the, the, the thing that I have discovered he wants me to do in this world, for this world, how do I fulfill that when I've got a wife that needs my time and attention and a son that needs my time and attention? And my response was, you have no greater responsibility than your wife and your son. That is the beginning of your kingdom work. Now, if you find time to do something beyond that, wonderful, great. But if you don't do that, you will not be the success that God wants you to be in anything else. He intends for you to start there, work there, do your best there. Because as a husband, once you say, I do, as a father, once you become one, you claim that responsibility for your own. And he wants you to work that out. And with that in mind, I want us to be thinking and coming up with some characteristics that do you think make the perfect man? Okay? 
Are you the perfect father? This says you are the perfect father. Are you? Are you the perfect man in your household? What are some of those characteristics? And ladies, feel free to speak up. I know you will. Give me some characteristics. Integrity. Say that again. I thought you said forgetting. I'm, I'm there, man. Forgiving, okay. Say it. Humble? Okay, humbleness. Commitment. Being a provider. Servant. Spiritual leader. Protector. Present. Honesty. Joyful. <laughs> Only on your list. That's what I'm thinking, Siri. <laughs> I got you. Only on that list. Okay, outside of crazy, how many of you fulfill the rest of the role? Anybody? You know why? Because the perfect man is a mythical creature. Right? There's no such thing like a fire-breathing dragon. You know, maybe a fire-breathing dragon actually existed at some point in time in, in history. Who knows? But the perfect man never has except for one. Except for one. Sorry. Do I need to move that down a little bit? Better? Okay. All right. So... There was a guy named Donald Miller. You may have read his book, Blue Like Jazz, or heard about it, but Donald wrote several other books, and two of them had to do with the fact that he had no father in his life. And he discusses those concepts. One of the books he entitled, To Own a Dragon, because to him, a father was the same thing as a mythological creature. He didn't have one in his life. He didn't understand it, and he said to think about having a father was like thinking about owning a dragon. As a matter of fact, he discusses that in his, his the book following that as he was writing in To Own a Dragon. He says, I bring this up because in writing some thoughts about a father or not having a father, I feel as though I'm writing a book about a toll under a troll under a bridge or a dragon. For me, a father was nothing more than a character in a fairy tale. I know fathers are not like dragons because fathers actually exist. I have seen them on television, sliding their arms around their wives in grocery stores, and I have seen them in the malls and in the coffee shops, but these were characters in other people's lives, in other people's stories. The sad thing is, as a kid, I wondered why I couldn't have a dragon, but I never wondered why I didn't have a father. Well, you know... I think there's a lot of misconception in our day and time. I think there's a lot of romance about what a man is supposed to be that's actually beyond what a man is supposed to be. What God requires of a man. And I want us to think about that in a minute, but, but because of that, I think we bring that in. There's, we have this concept, and, and when I do premarital counseling, I try to say, I'm, I don't want to talk anybody out of getting married, but I want to open your eyes and let you know that it's not Hollywood romance, it's not fairy tale happy ever after endings, that these are the things you're going to experience and come up against. And I try to help them avoid those little things that destroy relationships in the midst of it. 
Now, I've asked Sherry to read a piece that I found, and I will make this whole article available to those of you who would like to read it, and I really recommend it. Not to upset you, you might not even agree with the article, but the concept is, is to kind of give guys a little bit of a break and help us understand that it's not that you're wrong in how you want things done, but it's you're wrong in thinking that everybody wants to do them the way you want to do them. Okay? But Sherry's going to read for us an article by a lady who basically the premise was accidentally abusing her husband. Now, I know some of you guys just went, amen. (laughs) But I want you to listen to this, and I'll tell you how to get this article at the end of the message. All right, the perfect father, the myth. It's an easy stereotype to buy into. Look at the media, movies, TV, advertisements. They're all filled with images of hapless husbands and clever wives. He can't cook. He can't take care of the kids. If you send him out to get three things, he'll come back with two. And they'll both be wrong. We see it again and again. What this constant nagging and harping does is send a message to our husbands that says, we don't respect you. We don't think you're smart enough to do things right. We expect you to mess up. And when you do, you'll be called out on it swiftly and without reservation. Given this kind of negative reinforcement over time, he feels like nothing he can do is right, in your eyes. If he's confident with himself... And who he is, he'll come to to resent you. If he's at all unsure about himself, he'll start to believe you, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Neither one is a desirable, beneficial outcome to you, him, or the marriage. Did my husband do do the same to me? Just as I'm sure there are untold numbers of women who don't ever do this kind of thing to their husbands, I'm sure there are men who do it to their wives, too. But I don't think of it as a typical male characteristic. As I sat and thought about it, I realized my husband didn't display the same behavior toward me. I even thought about some of the times I really did make mistakes. The time I backed into the gate and scratched the car. He never said a word about it. The time I was making dinner, got distracted by a call from my mom and burned it to cinders. He just said, we can order pizza. The time I tried to put the new patio furniture together and left his good tools out in the rain, accidents happen, was his only response. I shuddered to think what I would have said had the shoe been on the other foot and he'd made those mistakes. Now again, this isn't to bash. It's just to open up those channels of thought for you to recognize there really are no perfect men. We make mistakes and we're willing to admit the concept that we make mistakes sometimes, maybe not the moment, because there's this great ego that lives inside of us that when you attack it, we protect it like it's a dinosaur egg, you know? We're going to protect that. And it's just good to get that out and help you to know. But what I want us to, to consider is that even though we're not perfect, we can improve. Just the same. And we need some role models in our lives. And I want us to go to the Bible for those role models to consider them. And for you to think about who can be my role model from a biblical perspective. So who would you select in the Bible to be your role model, guys? Jesus? Let's aim a little lower. 
Sorry? Oh, okay. David. Let's come back to him. Anybody else? Jonathan, Paul, Joseph. There's some good role models, aren't there, in the Bible. And I want us to think about them, and let's go to David. Why do I want to go to David? Because God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, if there's somebody that I want to be, he's a man after God's own heart. Because I have this idea that if I can become that, it'll solve a lot of the rest of the stuff that I'm dealing with. A lot of the other things that my wife has to put up with and my kids had to suffer through. You know, if I can solve that problem of becoming the man after God's own heart, and, you know, and the reason we look not to Jesus is we've got an out on that because Saul said, imitate me, or Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, kind of thing. So if you imitate, if your purpose is to become just like Jesus tomorrow, you're going to fail. But if your purpose is, to focus on someone who's trying to become like Jesus, who's focusing on someone trying to come about Jesus, you've got those steps to take in between that help you get there. And so I want us to focus, let's look at David. And you might think, well, David, I mean, a man after God's own heart, isn't that the perfect role model? Yeah, except for the adultery thing. Right? You ever heard of somebody named Bathsheba in David's life? Most of you know the story, but to make it quick, David, who didn't go to war when he was supposed to go to war, was out walking on the top of his castle, and he saw a young woman taking a bath, and he lusted after her, and he sent his servants to get her, and it turns out she was the wife of one of his soldiers, but somehow in the process, whether David seduces her or whatever happened, they have an affair, and she becomes with child, his child, and David wants to cover it up, so he sends for her husband, whose name is Uriah. They call him a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. They send him to come home so he can spend some time with his wife, and when the baby's born, he'll think it's his instead of David's. But Uriah comes home, and he will not spend time with his wife. Instead, he says, I've got soldiers out on the field fighting for their lives, and you bring me home, and have that opportunity. I'm not going to do that. And he sleeps at the gate instead of going to his wife. And David, knowing that his goose is cooked, decides a plan where he sends Uriah to the front lines, commands his commanders to withdraw in the heat of the battle, and you let Uriah be killed. And once that's done, he takes Bathsheba into his home as his own wife and thinks he's escaped the scandal. I think, I think there's a good quality of David in this, to be honest with you. If you think about it, there's a romantic quality of David that's being lived out. And you can see it. Now, David ends up having either seven or eight wives. We're not sure how many yet. Because there's some, not discrepancy, it's just some reporting issues around who's who as you list them out in different places. But he has all these wives. But three of them show David being very romantic in his process. Like 
when he was trying to get enough to pay the dowry for Saul, who was then king, had offered his daughter for David to have as a wife. And David says, I can't pay. It's no small matter to provide a dowry for a king's daughter. And the king says, well, then bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Now David says, that I can do. And he brought 200. Now, how much more romantic can you be? (laughs) There's another story of another wife named Abigail. Abigail was married to a guy named Nabal. The Bible says of Nabal he was surly, which means arrogant, and he was mean. And he treated people rough. And David experienced that because David and his band of guys were out guarding the people's flocks around the area to keep the the marauders from coming in and stealing their sheep. And he had been guarding Nabal's along with everybody else's. And, And he goes to Nabal just needing a few supplies to help him get by until things arrive. And Nabal treats him with very much disrespect, hatefully abuses his guys. And David is ticked. And he's trying to decide what he's going to do. Well, it says of Abigail, his Nabal's wife, is that she was intelligent and beautiful and she gathered up a bunch of supplies and headed out to see David and made peace between them. And when she got home, her husband was drunk and so she couldn't communicate with him. And she waited till the next day when he sobered up and she told him what he had done and he stroked out died on the spot. And David comes in and picks up Abigail and says, I'll take care of you, Abigail. How romantic can you be? And with Bathsheba, I think I think really what David had was a hero's complex. Now guys, I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't, because especially in front of your wife. But have you ever seen the situation of a woman who you thought was intelligent, beautiful, sweet-spirited with some surly man, some arrogant, mean, abusive, and you thought to yourself, if I just had that woman, I'd treat her right. I wouldn't treat her that way. I'd take care of it. See, you can see yourself easily going down the path that David went down and thinking these things because of the romance, which is a positive quality. Just put it to place, put it to work in the place where you are. Take care of the woman that you have committed to, that God has given you. Now, and, and I want you to think about even Bathsheba. Let's say you've got a friend, ladies. You've got a friend whose husband has been deployed. And he comes home, and the barracks is just down the street from your house. But instead of coming to see his wife, down the street from his wife, instead of coming to see his wife, he stays in the barracks with the guys. And then he's redeployed. What do you think? Really, what would go through your mind under those circumstances in this day and time? Uriah was not a romantic. He romanced war. 
Why do you think Bathsheba didn't say no? Now, I'm not blaming her. I'm just helping us to think a different way, to be careful not to judge people according to your standard of perfection again, but to realize there were chinks in the armor. There were places that could be used to get us to this place. The good news is that David is also humble. Now, he thinks he may have gotten away with it until... One of the prophets comes by by the name of Nathan. He tells David a story that a man had many sheep. And he had guests coming over. And I'm going to cut to the chase on this too. Guests coming over. And the man looked and he said, Well, my neighbor has a sheep and I'm going to steal it and prepare it and feed it to my guests coming over. And David was enraged at such a hateful greedy person that would do such a thing. And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. You had all these wives and you took Uriah's wife. Now, what could David the king have done at that point? He could have ordered Nathan dead, but instead he humbles himself. And he kneels before God and he says before, Before you and you only have I committed this sin, Lord, which is not true, but it's a place to start. Against you and you only have I committed this sin, and he repented. And so we see David as being a romantic. We see David as being a man after God's own heart. We see David as being humble and repentant, which makes him a perfect role model, right? Well, except for those consequences that follow sin. You know, the first thing that happens, Bathsheba gives birth to this baby and it's sick from the beginning. So bad so that David fasts and prays and lays on the floor and will not eat or drink and his servants are concerned he's going to starve himself to death and they're begging him, Master, please eat. And David's response is only, we don't know what God might do. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep fasting. I'm going to keep asking for his mercy on this child. Well, the child then dies. Some of you have buried your own children as fathers, as mothers. And you know the grief that a person has to go through. I'm going this afternoon to my dad who we just buried my brother. The reason I'm going back is because he said, I'm having a hard time. You're not supposed to bury your children. This is something that David was experiencing in his own life at that point in time. But when the child dies and his servants are worried, he may kill himself if we tell him the child has died. David proceeds, perceives that since they're in the corner holed up talking to each other that something has happened and he knows the child is dead and he gets up. Straightens things out, puts on clean clothes, says, I'm hungry. Let's eat. What's wrong with you? Well, David's faithful. So he's not blaming God that the child has died. He's accepting it. And not only that, he knows that he and the child will live again. And he says, I can't bring the child back to me, but I can go to where he is. So David was also a faithful man, a man of faith, understanding things and not getting angry with God and throwing his faith away because God didn't 
look or overlook the consequences of his sin. You see, David in the law should have been killed himself for the violations that he did of adultery and murder. Right? But he didn't. He's faithful. So, other than those things, David is the perfect mentor for us. Well, except that he was paralyzed by guilt as well. Because you see, it wasn't too long and things started happening. David had prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But that didn't take away the things that he had set in motion. And guys, you need to think about this. When you're about to do something in private that you think nobody else will be affected by. There's no such thing. What started to happen is that David's firstborn named Ammon got a hankering for their only sister. There were 25 brothers and one sister, Tamar. And Ammon fell in love with Tamar. And he wanted to seduce her. So his friend, his cousin, suggested a plan of action. He says, you act like you're sick. Ask for Tamar to come in and cook you something to eat and take care of you. And while there, convince her to come to bed with you. But Tamar, being a righteous woman, said, no, don't do this thing. If you ask the king, he will give me to you as your wife. But he wouldn't hear of it, and he forced himself on her at that moment. And then he hated her, immediately hated her after doing that. And what did she say? No, don't do this thing again, putting me away, casting me out. When you've already committed this, we need, you know, the idea was if you do that to a virgin, you marry a virgin. You marry her then. But he put her out. David heard about it. He was enraged. But guess what? Wasn't any worse than what he'd done. He had no moral high ground to stand on to issue some sort of punishment to them. And so what he did is he just kind of in-house detention, exiled them out of his life, but not out of his household. Both of them. Another son by the name of Absalom is enraged. And because David won't do something about it, two years later, he takes Ammon's life for the crime that he's committed. And he rebels against David, and he runs David off the throne and out of Jerusalem. And he intends to be king himself until one of David's servants decapitates him, takes him out. And David is just basically paralyzed to do anything about it. Now, guys, let me address you on this. You cannot allow guilt to bind you from being the father you need to be to your kids. Did you do things when you were a kid? Sure you did. Have you done things as an adult? Sure you probably have. But your kids need you to give them guidance. Your kids need you to be their role model. And when Satan comes and accuses you and says, 
Who do you think you are? You say, I think I'm the only role model these kids are going to have. I think I'm the only father they have, and I need to stand up and be a stand-up man and do what they need me to do in their lives. That's what I think. Now, if you haven't had a good influence in your life, you need somebody who will be a good influence in your life, not just a role model from the Scripture. You need somebody to help you out in this. That's why God gives us each other, and he encourages us to utilize godly men. There is wisdom and counsel, it says. Iron sharpens iron, it says. And you need to be a part of all of that. David testifies, God testifies concerning David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. You see, that's the one qualification it takes to be a man after God's own heart. I like simple things, and here's the simple thing. One qualification. Just do everything God wants you to do. How simple is that? Yeah, over in that, you have a bulletin? Over in that blank section, I want you to, we're really talking about priorities here, right? I want you to make out your priorities. How do you design your priorities? What's your, what's your top priorities? What, how do you put them on paper? How would you put your priorities on paper? God first. Family second. What do your priorities look like? Nobody? See that that's a good way to start. When David says he will do when God says he will do everything I want him to do, that's really David loving God. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Do everything I told you to do, if you love me. So this is David keeping the first commandment. I will do everything you want me to do, Lord, best I can do. And that has to be our commitment. But I want to I give you a sense of life organization that's a little bit different. And the object lesson or the illustration I want to give you is this. And Craig thought I was going to ride a unicycle, But, a unicycle, I guess it would be. But really what I want to do is say, instead of a list, because you can't keep a list. Let me tell you why. You put God first, you put your wife second, your family third, your church fourth, ever how you list that, you can't keep that. You know why? Because let's say it happens this way. You get up in the morning and you're late for your job and you haven't done your devotion. What are you going to do? Do your devotion or go to work? Why? Yeah, you get fired if you don't go to work, right? All right, let's say you do this. Your kid has a special ball game, but you've got a presentation in Chicago you've got to get to. Which one are you going to go to? You go to the kids' game, what happens? 
you can't feed your kid next month because you don't get a paycheck. Right? Now, that's the pressure guys live under, though, right? We live under how to do Here's my, my concept. This represents God in the priority list. He is not the top of the list. He's the center of life. He is the hub of which all of life revolves around. And all of those issues that we just talked about are spokes, right? And everything connects to the God that we serve. And so when you have an issue, what do you do? You look for guidance from God every day. Pray without ceasing every day. You let God guide you and you just go do it. And if it's wrong, God will use it to teach you. But you do the best you can do without guilt. And you continue to lead your life. And if it's, if it's your wife or your church or your kid or your job or your own health or exercise or sometimes your own rest and entertainment, the bills you've got to pay, whatever it happens to be, the yard needs mowed, all of those things. You do them because you're in relationship with God and He's leading you in all those things instead of you going, well, it's, that's kind of fourth down on my list and this is... And you're living in conflict. I get my hands dirty playing with old wheels. But that's the idea that I wanted you to think about. That's not going to work either. That's a different way to prioritize life and live life with God at the center of life. Preeminent in life. What does that mean? It means he permeates everything. It's not that you spend some time with God and now you've checked that off your list and now you go do whatever it is your wife needs to do or whatever it is you do with your kids or whatever your job requires or whatever church needs. You, don't, you, you can't be in more than one place at a time. Most of the time, you can't take care of more than one of those issues at a time. So you have to let God empower. And we're not even at the point of talking about the air, which is the Holy Spirit, that cushions. But we're just talking about you living in relationship with God as men of God and allowing God to order your life and see what kind of an improvement that will be on life for you. God at the hub of life. Of course, that's Jesus, right? No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. But this is what He says. And this is what I want to do for you. I want to unburden you from unrealistic expectations. I don't want to unburden you from wanting to be a man after God's own heart. I want to, I want to swap those two from being unrealistic expectations to being the man of God he wants you to be. He says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of that pressure to be the perfect man. All of that guilt that you've been carrying around. 
keeping you from being the role model, the example that your kids need in your life or your friends need you to be. When Satan comes to you and whispers, you'll never be anything, remember? You can't serve God, remember? You haven't earned forgiveness, remember? One night long ago, or one morning, about 4 a.m., I got a phone call. My wife picked up the other line, and she heard the person on the other line say to me, I know what you did. I'd never told her what I'd done. I had to explain it to her that day. I'll never tell another soul what I did. I'm still ashamed of it, but I'm not under the guilt of it. Does that make sense? I don't want to glorify it, and I don't trust you to like me after I would tell you that anyway. Right? He says, I know what you have done. And when I had explained it to her, there was about the space of a year that we had almost no relationship at all. If I reached out to touch her, she would shriek back. We couldn't have a conversation without her saying, I just don't see how you could do that. After about a year, and I'll tell you, the Lord just gave me the grace, and there was a lot of tears and a lot of prayer that gave me the grace to be patient. And He gave me the grace to overcome the guilt. He gave me the grace to be a leader when the time comes time came and I just walked to her one afternoon and I said look I can't live like this anymore I'm not leaving you but I'm telling you I'm not going to live in this darkness anymore I'm going to live free if you want to come with me you come on but I'm going to have joy again and I walked back into my office and I knelt down and I began to pray it wasn't long. She knocked on the door and she opens it. And she's crying. She said, basically, this is a summation. It's time. It's time. Now, Satan has come to me a lot of times and says, I know what you did too. And you know what I say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't have to live under that guilt. don't have to live in the past. I forget the past and I press forward, right? My wife will tell you, if you go ask her, she will tell you who her best friend is. It's me. 38 years ago, we tied the knot. Married for 38 years. 25 good years. <laughs> Most of them are my fault that weren't good. Most of them are, and I know that. It's the nature of the beast, right? It's who we are as guys and ladies trying to get along. And 
guys having such huge egos. And, but I had role models. I had people to help me along. And I had a presence that I tried to practice at the center of my life that got me through some very, very difficult moments and times in my life. And I want you to be able to shuck off, throw off the burden that's holding you back from progressing with the Lord. Now, here's what's next. Give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. And ladies, give your husband a break. If you're the one that Satan's using to persecute him at this point, hold him back, and let God work in his life. 1 Peter 3 tells us, God will step back and let you control and complain. You know what the word is I'm avoiding, right? Nag, do whatever it is you want to do. Or God will step in and he will deal with your husband, but he won't compete for you with you for that space. He won't compete for you. You read it. 1 Peter 3. Guys, let go of the guilt. If you have to talk to someone to do that, then talk to someone. Practice the preeminence of God in your life. He's at the center, not at the top of the list. And just do everything he wants you to do. Love God. Love God. Your spouse, love your kids, love Jesus. And I say not Jesus is fourth, but just so you, you know, you can't love Jesus if you're not loving others. And I put up there, if you will text the word article to that phone number, you'll get the full article that Sherry started reading. It'll be a link that'll come back to you in your text messages. But I'm only going to leave that up for about an hour, so you need to get to it. All right, let's pray. God, I just want to bring before you these people that Satan tries to keep from being people after your own heart, whether they're men or they're women. It doesn't matter to you. What does matter is that you're ready to do something, the next great move of God. We know it's right here on the horizon what you're about to do. But Satan keeps telling us we're not worthy, we're not qualified, and we just want to deny that word in our life and allow you to control, to take over. Relieve us of the burden. We swap our heavy guilt for your light burden. We swap our busy schedule and workload for the yoke of the kingdom. And we just surrender to you to form us into the people you want us to be. listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org.
or find us on Facebook.